Psalm 46. Psalm 46. To begin, let us note the supposed condition of the world during the time of this psalm. Well, at least its condition in the eyes of the writers, the sons of Korah. If you could take a planet, put it in a bottle, turn it upside down, and shake it all around, you would get the state of things in verses 2 and 3. No footing seems secure as the earth gives way underneath you. Nothing is where it should be as mountains are are cast into the sea. Threats around you roar with confidence and swell with pride like raging and foaming waters that are seemingly no longer held back by the Lord's prescribed limits bars and doors. Remember how the Lord commanded the waves, thus far you shall come and no farther. And so everything about this setting would make the average observer wonder, but is God really still in control? Martin Luther is obviously a controversial figure in Christian history. And these words that I present to you now by no means are meant to serve as an endorsement for everything he ever said and did. Many do consider that Luther's work and writings together served as the primary catalyst for the Protestant Reformation in the early 16th century. As one would expect, this vocal rebellion against the teachings of the Catholic Church led to a life which was filled with Conflict, abandonment, condemnation, and disrepute. He had every reason to experience anxiety, fear, and and every kind of inner turmoil as waters raged and mountains trembled all around him. Trapp records the following, Luther, when in greatest distress, was wont to call for this psalm, saying, let us sing the 46th Psalm in concert, and then let the devil do his worst. Indeed, Luther held a deep appreciation for music, writing next to the Word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. He continued, a person who does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God does not deserve to be called a human being. And with words like these, we can see a small reason why Luther had a few enemies. Luther's love of music together with a life filled with uncertainty and turmoil, they combined to produce just the right vessel to write for us the beautiful hymn we sang earlier this morning. A mighty fortress is our God. A song based on the 46th Psalm, which Luther so greatly cherished. A majority of commentators believe that Israel's best songwriters composed this psalm way back then during the reign of Hezekiah, during the service of the prophet Isaiah, and and most relevant to the text before us during the time of an ever-growing and seemingly unstoppable Assyrian army now at Jerusalem's doorstep. The heathen king Sennacherib, 
is the leader of this juggernaut. And they are the roaring, foaming, swelling waters. As they conquer and annihilate kingdoms, they are symbolically moving mountains, as the text describes. However, I think that the example of Luther reminds us that the words of the Psalms are meant to comfort and to encourage and relate to a multitude of settings. Even though you don't literally have a massive army in front of you, And so I ask you, has the world in which you live felt unstable, chaotic, turbulent lately? In a big picture sense, the threat of a virus stopped the world from moving. Threats of riots, unrest, anarchy seemed to loom over certain cities of this nation. Elections, court decisions, pending legislation are all on the horizon, and their results, whatever they may be, might seem to only shake up this bottle that has already been turned upside down. But can't you also relate to the situation in this psalm on a personal level? A financial setback, an out-of-nowhere diagnosis, divorce, conflict in the church, the death of a loved one. Do not these things, too, make it feel like the earth is giving away at your feet? In Numbers 35, the Lord outlines the provision of what he calls cities of refuge in the land of Canaan. For example, suppose that I have a huge boulder that I am pushing off my land And unbeknownst to me, Michael Jenkins is standing beneath it and he gets crushed. Liam, his firstborn son, upon observing the fate of his father, cries out, I'm going to kill that Craig. And if this took place, I could then flee to one of these cities of refuge. And, And Liam could not touch me because before I was given a proper trial... The law promised that as long as I stayed within the boundaries of that city of refuge, Liam could not touch me. But if for any reason I stepped even one foot outside of those boundaries, he could do whatever he wanted. The psalm begins in verse 1, God is our refuge. When the accidents of life happen... When things beyond our control take place, or when something we cannot premeditate or anticipate arises, we can run to Him for safety. And as long as we remain there, nothing and no one can touch us. Tragically, How many of us, though, put a foot just across and outside the boundary of the city of God just to see what will happen? The Lord, through Joshua, provided six cities of refuge in the Promised Land, three on each side of the Jordan River. And so notice on the map before you, these cities, they're pretty much equally spread out 
so that someone would never be too far away from asylum. The psalmist continues in verse 1. God is a very present help in trouble. The Hebrew word translated present in the ESV, it's a difficult one. One commentary describes that it means that God is a very accessible help. Benson adds, God is a a help at hand that is never far to seek, but always to be found by us. You see, like those sextet of cities, our God is also never too far from his people. If I were to pull up a map in order to find the location of Craig's city of refuge as of this very second, it'd be located right here at 1135 Chatham Road, Buford, Georgia, 30518. And interestingly, the other night when I could not sleep, the city of refuge, it was at my home address. And some time ago, when I was getting really stressed out at Publix, because for some reason I decided to go to battle with all the old people on Wednesday morning at Publix when all the new sales start, All along, there was a city of refuge there, too. You see, the Lord is not just a present help. He is a very exceedingly present help. And so, we will not fear. Because evil cannot do any irreparable harm to us, for we are not merely in, but rather we are the city of God. Notice that. Observe in verse 4. And within that city, there's a river. One scholar writes, The great fear of an eastern city in time of war was lest the water supply should be cut off during a siege. If that were secured, the city could hold out against attacks for an indefinite period. In this verse, Jerusalem, which represents the church of God, is described as well supplied with water to set forth the fact that in seasons of trial, all sufficient grace will be given to enable us to endure unto the end. End quote. And so outside of the city, all around the earth, like we discussed, we've got uncertainty and fear and turmoil. Within that city, though, we find all that is needed to not only sustain, but is also, as verse 4 states, to make glad. Notice that in verse 4. With this in mind, Benson writes, If the earth be removed, those have reason to fear that have laid up their treasures on earth and have set their hearts upon it. But not those who've laid up for themselves treasures in heaven and who then can expect to be most happy. The stability of the faith and peace within the city contrasts with the instability of the waters and the mountains and the earth in the previous verses. While in verse 2, those other mountains were moved from their places and cast into the sea. Notice that in verse 5, the city of God shall not be moved. Like Mama always said, 
Tug of war is a lot of fun until the other team gets the guy weighing 350 pounds. Okay, maybe mama never said that, but it's true. Mom, I hope you're not watching. And the same principle applies here. The reason the city will not be moved is because, as verse 5 states, look at it, God, the big guy, is in the midst of her. In addition, any attack on the city is therefore an attack on him. Uh-oh. I need to stop. Before we continue, let's pause in the middle of verse 5 and observe something with me about this psalm. It has a chorus, or what we call a refrain. You know, the repeated section of a song. We find the chorus in verse 7, and again in verse 11. Actually, some commentators believe it was accidentally omitted from verse 3. That chorus is, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I believe we find the perfect manifestation of this chorus in Genesis 28. Genesis 28, beginning in verse 10. Jacob, whose name is in that chorus, Jacob is journeying to Haran. It's a time of great uncertainty in his life. He's left the only home he's ever known. There's conflict between him and his brother, He's hoping to find a wife at the home of a relative. And one night during this journey, as Jacob sleeps on the ground with a stone for a pillow, he has a dream of a ladder beginning at the earth and reaching into heaven. The angels of God ascend and descend this ladder, and the Lord's there, seemingly directing it all. Now, and I think about this for a moment. God has these angels in a nice orderly fashion, going back, back and forth, like there's some group of perfectly trained soldiers, up and down and up and down and dun 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 dun, dun up and down and up and down they go. It took only two of these guys to obliterate Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim. As far as we know, it took only one destroyer, the angel of death, to strike down all the firstborn in Egypt in one night. Think about this. And God is giving orders to a whole army of these guys. Up and down the ladder they go. So when we sing, the Lord of hosts is with us, we're basically saying the God of angel armies is at our side. And that is an awesome thought. But second we sing, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Now the song could just as easily say the God of Israel. After all, Israel's the name given to Jacob by God. Why not Israel? It's more common in the Old Testament. Israel refers to the same person. I think Israel is just too national, too general. The Jew would hear God of Israel and think of a community God, a collective group of peoples God. But by instead saying the God of Jacob, the meaning is much more individual, much more personal. 
It harkens back to a God who personally encountered a man during a time of difficulty and strengthened that same man with promises of a blessed future and of a continual protective presence. Therefore, when we sing, first, the Lord of hosts is with us, we stand in awe at the enormous spectacle with the wide lens zoomed all the way out in wonder of the awesomeness of of the God who orders the universe, the stars, the planets, and the angels. And then when we add the God of Jacob is our fortress, we take amazing comfort in knowing that just as the super big God was individually and personally with Jacob, so he will also individually and personally be with me and with you. And so each one of us can also sing, the Lord of hosts is with me. The God of Jacob is my fortress. Now, you remember where we paused? Right in the middle of verse 5. On that night, the citizens of Jerusalem go to their beds with every reason to panic, to worry, to fear. The massive Assyrian army is at their gates. Exile, or just as likely death, seemingly await. How sleepless must that night have been. How it must have felt like an eternity amid the uncertainty But the second half of verse 5 proclaims, God will help her when morning dawns. In 2 Kings 19, verse 35, we then discover, And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. As it turns out, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers had been struck dead in their camp. And wouldn't you know it? It only took one angel. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is something else. God sure did help when the morning dawned. In my, uh, in my children's writing curriculum, there's a technique that they learn called the three S's. And this stands for three short staccato sentences. The teacher states that these, these, these can add a punch to your writing. And here's an example he provides. Killer bees invaded America. Viciously, they attacked. Humans suffered. This style, it's impactful. Like three rapid-fire jabs to the jaw. In verse 6, the sons of Korah use what we might call four S's, four short staccato sentences. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. McLaren writes the following, this condensed narrative moves to its end by a series of short, crashing sentences like the ring of the destructive 
axe at the roots of trees. We see the whole sequence of events as by lightning flashes, which give brief glimpses and are quenched. The grand graphic words seem to pant with haste as they record Israel's deliverance with, with what fervor, vigor these, these hurried sentences describe first the wild wrath and formidable movements of the foe. And then the one sovereign word which quells them all as well as the instantaneous weakness that dissolves the seeming solid substance when the breath of his lips smites it. Trembling earth, moving mountains, raging waters, lots of yelling and grunting and roaring, what effort is required, all of it in vain. It's the stuff of beginners, of losers. God merely opens his mouth and the whole thing just melts. In response to the annihilation of his army, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, with his tail between his legs, takes his ball and what is left of his army and goes home. Verses 8 and 9, they depict this. Bows broken, spears shattered, chariots aflame. There will be no more fighting for Assyria for a long time. This is a war they cannot win. And so after all that... We finally come to verse 10. The well-known exclamation of the Lord, Be still and know that I am God. <sighs> Have you ever known someone to answer an either-or question incorrectly? Do you know what I mean? You might find such people to be very, very annoying or dare I say, you might be one of those people. For example, my wife Kelsey asks me, Craig, would you like to go out to eat or go to the movies? And I reply, yes. One idea behind such a response, other than trying to sound really smart, is to state that your either-or proposition can, in fact, be a both-and proposition. My yes to Kelsey is my way of saying, I see no reason why we can't do both. Commentators, <laughs> commentators, vigorously debate the directed audience of the Lord's words in verse 10. Is the Lord admonishing the heathen armies? Or is he preaching to the people of God? And everyone has an opinion. Which do you think it is? The heathen armies or the people of God? And my response to the question is, you better believe, yes. Imagine that. The word of God speaking truth to different people in a variety of situations. Pretty cool, huh? And so, yes, I do think these words are God's way of telling the enemies of his people, in my own words, just stop, stop with all the fighting, shut up and sit down, realize the vanity of your efforts, I will win before it's all said and done, so you better recognize. Be 
still and know that I am God. But at the same time, these are words of direction for his people, for us, with the pressing army of the Egyptians on one side and the Red Sea on the other. Moses tells the people, fear not, stand firm, the Lord will fight for you, you only have to be silent. As Moabite, Ammonite, and Minunite armies together converge on Judah, King Jehoshaphat tells the people, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Be still. No longer complain about your current standing Don't let bitterness invade your heart. Be still. Do not foolishly retreat to the selfishness and worldliness of your past. Be still. Do not vainly try to fight this battle on your own, by your own might. Be still. God is your strength. Be still. God is your refuge. Be still. God is a very present help in trouble. Be still. God is in your midst. Be still. He will help you in the morning. Be still. The Lord of hosts is with you. Be still. The God of Jacob is your fortress. In this relatively short psalm of only 11 verses, we find the word salah. It's the kind of stuff that when you read it, you just skip over. It's verse 3, verse 7, verse 11. We're not exactly sure what this word means. But the popular opinion is that it is a musical term for silence, for rest. At this point, the singer pauses for breath perhaps during an interlude, giving time to absorb what has just been said. Time for contemplation and reflection. And and so when you think about it, this psalm does not say, be still, only once. But really several more times at each of these salahs, each of them is another moment to remember, to cherish, and to know that He is our God. But do you know him as your God? There remains a rest within the city of God. Flee. Run to him for refuge. He is very present right here and right now. There is a river whose streams make glad. The morning is here, and God is ready to help you. If you have any need, if we can serve you in any way, if you're ready to make him your God in obedience today, please come while together we stand and sing.
Wonderful story of love. Tell it to me again. Wonderful story of love. Waking up so Angels with flashing lights. Shepherds with wonder
Let us pray. Father, thank you for letting us be together and bringing us together in freedom and peace. Thank you for the chance to worship you, to think of the great things you have done, the great things that you do, and to think on your will for us. Please guide us and give us strength as we go forth to serve. In Jesus' name we pray.